You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR Community Radio and welcome to Listening Notes, stories about politics, art and activism. And more and more, it seems like we're focusing on the environment. Such a big issue right now. So much going on. I'm Judith Peppard, and I'll be with you for the next half hour. And thank you to Black Noise Radio for their show today. I begin by acknowledging that 3CR is broadcasting from the land of the Kulin Nations, true owners, custodians, and caretakers of this land, and I pay my respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded. Later in the show, Mark Hudson will tell us how Australian efforts to introduce carbon pricing were undermined over 30 years. It's only seven years ago that some of the people who signed that letter from the Climate Roundtable were celebrating when Abbott got rid of Gillard's carbon pricing scheme. I mean, it's only seven years. They expect us to forget this? Mark Hudson. Now, last week on Listening Notes, space archaeologist Alice Gorman told us about the richness and magic of the moon's environment and the importance of protecting it. This week, we're going to take a look at how it influences Australian wildlife. We'll hear from three early career researchers whose research was featured in an article published in the conversation last week entitled Predators, Prey, and Moonlight Singing, How Phases of the Moon Affect Native Wildlife. So let's meet them. Ashton Dickerson has a year to go in her PhD at the University of Melbourne. Grant Lindley is just beginning his PhD at Charles Sturt University. And Kate Senior is finishing up her PhD this year at the School of Biosciences at the University of Melbourne. I began by asking, what attracted them to this area of study? For me, I grew up always loving birds. I find them accessible if you live in the city or the country area. With my research with the willy wagtails, they're really interesting because they're a diurnal species, which means they're mostly active during the day, but they've got this funny behavior of singing at night. And on top of that, there's this folklore that's always existed that they sing more at night when there's a full moon, but it's never been backed by science. It's always just been this anecdote that people have believed. So I was really interested in testing whether or not that was actually true. Grant Lindley. I've held an interest since I was probably uh, very young. I remember telling everyone when I was a kid not to step on the ant trails and things like that. So I've always had an affinity for the outdoors. And, and as I grew older, I enjoyed understanding and ecosystems and animals within them. My general PhD is looking at how small mammals respond to a variety of different things like fire, climate, weather, the moon. And I really like working with them because they're very small, they're very elusive. It's a real privilege to be able to work with something that the general community doesn't really get to look at. And then also to be able to bring that into the spotlight and show people how cool our native small mammals are. We have an amazing diversity and they play really important functions in the ecosystem. I saw a word that I'd never heard before, the Mali. I don't know how to say it. Ningwai? So it's a Ningawi. So it's a tiny native insectivore. Um, so it's a little marsupial and it weighs between 6 to 12 grams. They're tiny and they're super ferocious. So when you catch them in hand, they go at you. They try and get you. They think they're super tough. And they're found all throughout the Mali region, which is this big semi-arid belt that ranges from northwest of Oyen in Victoria up to Broken Hill and across into South Australia as well. And that was Kate Senior telling me why she's chosen to study small mammals 
and I'll remember to be careful about the Ningawi in case I run into one if I'm camping north of Oyen. I asked Kate to tell me more about her research. So we're using pitfall traps to survey these small mammals, which is what is mostly used in kind of arid and semi-arid Australia. So a pitfall trap is a line of buckets in the ground connected by a drift fence that animals hit and then they run into it and fall in. So you get up at dawn or pre-dawn to check those, assuming you've already opened them the previous day, which involves quite a lot of work, digging them open and digging the fence and everything. So you're up at pre-dawn, you drive out to site and then you... At each bucket, you're checking the buckets first for snakes. So you have to use like a quite a long stick or tongs or something to check that there's no snakes in there. And then you're sifting through the sand looking for small mammals. If you're lucky enough to find one, we then get it out. We weigh it. We identify it for what it is in terms of the species. We figure out its sex. We look at if there's any signs of reproductive activity. So if it's a marsupial, it might have pouch young. It might be obviously lactating or something. And then we let them go, usually into a nice bush or something in the side next to the trap. And so we check all the traps. It usually takes like two to three hours. And then it's like mid-morning by the time you're done. You've sent me a photo of the traps. And I imagine that people will be concerned about the, the safety of the animals. And the word trap, of course, is kind of scary. So I think you've wanted to assure me that the animals are not only not hurt in the trap, but they're also safe from predators. Would that be right? That is right. Yeah. So they're live traps. So what we do is they're there. It's a fall for the animal, first of all, but it's not a significant fall. And there's sand at the bottom that buffers that. And then we provide shelter in the trap. So each trap has a little um, cylindrical like PVC pipe or something that the animal can get in. We put some cloth in that they can shelter in as well. Um, And then we also spray around the trap to stop things like ants and spiders getting in there and hurting them. Yeah. So what about the snakes that you just mentioned? Most of the snakes that get in the traps are small and they're not going to eat the small mammals. So big snakes get out. If they get in at all, they usually don't fall in. They're pretty smart and they're quite long. So the ones that I catch in the traps are little nocturnal snakes that mostly eat worms and eggs and lizards and tiny things. And how do you feel when you go out in the morning and, and look at the traps? I'm always excited. Like I've been doing this for over five years and I'm still excited every time. And that was Kate Sr. and talking about her research in the Mali. Now to prepare for my conversation with Ashton Dickerson about her research on willy wagtails, I downloaded an app for Australian bird song to find out what they sounded like. So there's one that's kind of melodic. And there's one that's a kind of raspy. So I'm wondering if you can tell me something about the difference between these two sounds. They have a song, which is that pretty twinkly kind of noise that people might be familiar with. Uh, People often describe their song as it sounds like they're saying, sweet, pretty creature. Their song is largely what they use to communicate with um, other willy wagtails for both territory defence and also for mate attractions so that they can attract partners The second kind of call that you heard, that raspy rattle-like scold, that's what we call an alarm call. So they use those sign of calls to let each other know when there's danger around. If you come across one of their nests or you wander too close into their territory, sometimes they'll do that rattle scold at you as well to let you know that they want you to go away. You'll often see them chasing bigger birds such as ravens or magpies doing that scold as well. That's their very unhappy noise. 
It's so much fun to see a tiny little bird like that chasing a magpie or something that large. They're notorious for taking on animals that they probably shouldn't be taking on. I have noticed during lockdown, magpies singing around midnight. Is it just me or is there something going on? Magpies are one of the other common birds that sing at night in Australia. It's not just you. I've found this year a lot more people have noticed that it's happening. I wonder if it's because more people are spending time at home, they're noticing their surroundings, but every year the magpies and the willy wagtails will start singing at night coming into spring. And it's spring now, so we're starting to notice that behaviour. Before starting his PhD, Grant Lindley did some research at Mount Rothwell Conservation and Research Reserve, about 50 kilometres from Melbourne. Mount Rothwell is Victoria's largest feral, predator-free ecosystem. I asked Grant what role such reserves play in research. So these sites play a, a vital role in, in not only protecting the uh, threatened species that are put back, they actually protect habitat eucalypts and a range of different trees and grasses and wildflowers and things like that. So it's not just about the animals here, it is actually protecting a piece of our, of our identity, of, of our history. So specifically here what I looked at was how uh, mammal activity varied under different treatments of nocturnal illumination. These species are nocturnal and that's when they get out and forage. What are some of the species you're looking at? Eastern barred bandicoots, uh, eastern quolls. We had different species of betongs. Potteroos, the majority of the species we recorded were all herbivores. We had two predators, we had spot-tailed quolls and also eastern quolls. So we grouped them together and, and looked at collectively how they respond to uh, different nocturnal illumination. What did you find about the effect of moonlight? There was actually a difference between the prey. They responded by increasing the activity around high cloud cover and low illumination, whereas predators, but they actually respond more to the patterns of the moon. So they increase their activity around uh, low nocturnal illumination, so new and half moon phases, so less light and then high cloud cover. It essentially is a, a game of cat and mouse that these species are actually playing at night with each other. There's a trade-off between, for the prey species, you obviously have to forage to survive and that goes equally for the predators, but then also for the prey species, you've got to be watching out. So there's a there's a basically an energy trade-off where these species have to balance the scales between being seen and uh, also foraging. And the sense I had from the paper was that the, the predators don't have to uh, work as long hours in bright light because they, they catch their creatures more quickly. So the moon has an impact. Absolutely, yeah. Kate, what did you find about moonlight? We expected to find that the small mammals, because they're prey species, they would be less active when the moon was high. Um, but we actually found... Uh, differences between them. So we looked at five different species, four of them were native and one of them's introduced, which is um, just your regular house mouse. And we found that two of them showed the expected negative relationship with the moon. So both of these are threatened species. We've got the Malinengawi, which is that little marsupial insectivore. And we've got Bollum's mouse, which is an amazing native rodent that is extinct in the wild in Victoria and now only found in this kind of pocket the New South Wales, South Australian border. They both showed negative relationships with moonlight. But surprisingly, one species, the Western Pygmy Possum, found, um, had a positive relationship with the moon. They were more active when the moon was um, bright. And then two species didn't really show a relationship at all. Why do you think they were more active? Yeah, so we attribute it to differences in their life history and their habitat preferences. So um, the two species that were less active both 
occupy more open habitats or the terrestrial species that are going to be on the ground. And so there's potentially more risk at foraging when the moon is higher because they can be seen by a predator. Whereas the Western pygmy possum is a semi-arboreal species. Um, and so it's more sheltered in a tree. The predators that are going to be getting them in a tree are more like owls and things like that. But you can also find more shelter if you're in different kind of strata within the canopy. And they also eat different things. So the Western pygmy possum mostly eats flowers and insects. Um, and they actually might find a foraging advantage in being able to see what they're eating. Right. Okay. And uh, Ashton, you've talked already a bit about the moonlight. So yeah, what significance does it have? We found that willy wagtails sing significantly more with increasing moon brightness. So we think that means willy wagtails want to not only be heard, but also seen. This is a daytime species, so their visual abilities are adapt to work in bright conditions. So we're wondering if when the moon is up, that enables willy wagtails to potentially be moving around their environment, which could be one of the reasons why they start singing more as it gets brighter. Right. So are they show-offs? They're definitely show-offs. <laughs> These birds sing um, over 100 songs an hour at night, like really extraordinary amounts in the middle of the night, you know, when most birds are asleep. When I've mentioned this to people that, you know, I'm doing this interview and Willie Wagtail's singing at night, they're quite surprised. I think a lot of people actually don't realise it. Would you hear them in the city at night? Yeah. Willie Wagtails are really commonly found in farmlands, areas with livestock, big grassy areas, but we do also find them in cities, anywhere that, where there's parks with open grass and some thick bushes and vegetation. So when the curfew's over, I could go out at midnight to a local open space and possibly hear a willy wagtail, especially if there's a full moon. Definitely. If anyone feels like walking around the city at night when there's a full moon, maybe you'll hear a willy wagtail, but I'm not sure I recommend doing that. And if you've just joined us, I'm speaking with three early career researchers in environmental science, Ashton Dickerson, Grant Lindley, and Kate Senior. We spoke last Wednesday, and that morning, a paper had been published entitled Research Reveals Shocking Detail on How Australia's Environmental Scientists Are Being Silenced. So I wondered how they had felt hearing that news alarming we are people that try trying to forge a career in this space and you don't want to be part of that trend I am aware of the fact that government people are not allowed to I guess comment on political things so if you're going to go into that path that's something you have to be aware of um, but I'm also really lucky to work kind of in this intertwined space with policy and management where my work does kind of go and have an impact on management as a researcher, you're extremely passionate about this field and, and to hear these sort of things happening, you know, it makes you extremely sad, but you've always got to hold hope and you've always got to hold, think that you know, things will get better. I hope that um, for early career researchers like myself and then other people moving up and we, especially with social media and new platforms and things like this, we can better improve our, our way to communicate our science more effectively to the public. What about you, Ashton? I saw the article pop up, but I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I can't say I felt surprised. You know, unfortunately, this is a problem we're dealing with at the moment. There's definitely a balance there where things might not be ideal right now. Sometimes we ecologists may not feel heard. But on the other side of things, I think there are a lot of people trying to improve that situation. You know, the more that we can 
engage with the public and put our research out there, people like what we do. People are interested and want to care. It's just a matter of getting that through to the higher level. I also hold on to hope that things will get better. Yeah, and I think it's important for the public to engage with and appreciate the nature that we live in. Ashton Dickerson from the University of Melbourne, Grant Lindley, Charles Sturt University, and Kate Senior, University of Melbourne. And we're all hoping this will improve for environmental scientists and for Australian wildlife. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet. www.3cr.org.au And you are on 3CR. The show is Listening Notes. I'm Judith Peppard. And great to have you with us this afternoon. You may remember that at the end of August, the Australian Climate Roundtable, an alliance of Australia's biggest businesses, farmers, unions, conservation groups, and civil society, released a statement calling for climate action. Dr. Mark Hudson is a postdoctoral researcher with the Centre for Understanding Sustainable Prosperity at Keele University. His PhD investigated the strategic responses of fossil fuel incumbents and Australian industry bodies to proposals for carbon pricing over 30 years from 1989 to 2011. He's written a paper for the conversation entitled A Bit Rich. Business groups want urgent climate action after resisting it for 30 years. I asked him, given he'd done his PhD at Manchester University, why Australia? I talk like a pom, but I actually grew up in Adelaide. Some of your listeners will be old enough to remember the public concern about what we then called the greenhouse effect in 1988, 89, 1990. Everyone was running around going, we've got to do something about the greenhouse effect. And then that kind of vanished by about, you could argue, 1992. But I was in that wave. I came of age in that. And I realized by sort of the middle of 1991 that we were, as a species, probably not going to respond to climate change the way that we needed to. I stayed concerned and intermittently active ever since then. Your paper was a response to the announcement that the Australian Climate Roundtable has uh, declared the nation is woefully unprepared for climate change and urgent action is needed. Were you surprised? My dominant feeling was rage that these people who have spent so long making sure that Australia is woefully unprepared 
for climate change are now wringing their hands and pointing their fingers at a government that they have enabled through all of this. I mean, it's only seven years ago that some of the people who signed that letter from the Climate Roundtable were celebrating when Abbott got rid of Gillard's carbon pricing scheme. I mean, it's only seven years. They expect us to forget this. And so I pitched the article to the conversation because I'm sick of these people getting to constantly reinvent themselves as somehow blameless when they have a 30-year record of extremely active, extremely sophisticated and successful demolishing of any attempt at consensus on doing something about climate change. Let's just look at some of the history of the activities of the groups that we're talking about. Let's start with the Business Council of Australia. The Business Council of Australia was set up because business was worried that Bob Hawke was talking to the unions and he wasn't talking to business. There had been other business lobbies, but the BCA started in sort of late 83 and quickly became preeminent. Around climate change, the BCA made sure that the ecologically sustainable development process was watered down. When there were proposals in various working groups of that in 1991 for a carbon tax, the Business Council of Australia did a lot of lobbying against that and they were successful. Then the Business Council of Australia worked with the what we now call the Minerals Council of Australia, it had a different name then, to create something called the Industry Greenhouse Network, which was the big end of town making sure that the carbon tax didn't come back onto the agenda. The name, the Australian Industry Greenhouse Network, sounds kind of benign, like, you know, a good thing. That's not an accident. That's, they will have chosen that name in 94, 93, 94, about four years after an American outfit called the Global Climate Coalition came into existence, and that was Exxon, General Motors, Ford, etc. They deliberately choose these names to sound benign and helpful. So what did they do? The Industry Greenhouse Network stopped any proposal by John Faulkner and the Australian Conservation Foundation, which had done lots of the running for that, to bring in a very modest carbon price. And I think part of their rationale was, well, it will be modest to begin with, but over time, once this is normalised that you could tax carbon dioxide, the government could easily ramp it up and then we'd be in trouble. And the other thing that they didn't like was that the money would go to fund research development and ultimately deployment of renewable energy, which sounds great if you're a citizen, but if you're making lots and lots of cash from digging up and flogging coal, renewables are your enemy. Once Howard got in, uh, in 96, life became much easier for the Business Council, but there was a big split over the ratification of Kyoto. In 2003, there was like a proper fight within the Business Council of Australia, and they ended up switching from being opposed to Kyoto ratification to having literally no position. And this was because various former fossil fuel people, and I'm thinking of a guy called Greg Bourne from uh, BP, and other people, uh, probably, you know, Westpac and so forth, who could see, A, that climate change was real, and B, that you could make money from both carbon trading and renewables, were trying to get the BCA to shift. It then decided that the best thing to do once Rudd came in was to try and water down his proposals so that they didn't hurt profits, and it was no longer possible to be publicly viciously opposed. It looks to me like the big end of town wasn't delighted but could live with the Rudd proposals but of course they didn't get up 
And it then became very difficult for the Business Council of Australia because instead of having a fragile political consensus and then being able to modify proposals, Abbott created a political and culture war. The Business Council of Australia had to decide, do we care enough about climate change to stick to our guns and possibly piss off the guy who was going to be the next prime minister because it was clear that he was going to become the prime minister? Or do we just play doggo? Do we just go completely quiet? And they sort of chose the latter option. And they did enough undermining of Gillard to let Abbott keep going. And then, you know, they set out press releases going, it's good that the carbon price has been abolished. But I think pretty quickly, they realised, you know, the old adage, be careful what you wish for, you might get it. Because the absence of a carbon price means that investors who are looking to invest in replacing coal-fired power stations, which are coming to the end of their life, don't know, well, should we invest in gas or should we invest in renewables? Should we invest in other things? And to answer that question, you need to know what the policy settings are going to be. You need to know, is there going to be a carbon price? What is the government actually going to do about climate change? And then you can make a calculated decision about very big numbers, hundreds of millions of dollars. If there is total policy chaos and policy is being made up and then we saw what happened to Turnbull. Even the smallest things that he tried to do got howled down. Life gets very expensive. And I think that's ultimately what's behind this climate roundtable thing is businesses have realised energy prices are going up. There are many factors there. There is no end to this policy paralysis. And if you just tuned in, I'm speaking with Mark Hudson from Keele University in the UK. Meanwhile, other states that Australia trades with are looking seriously at climate change. And they're finally realising that they could end up, number one, losing a lot of money, or number two, being really heavily regulated. And so I think what's going on is they're trying to get the Liberal Party to see sense. Yeah, good luck with that. And of course, there's also an element of burnishing their reputation. They're wanting to be able to say to protesters, hey, don't attack us. You know, we're members of the Climate Roundtable and we've just recently released such and such a, a statement. Go and stand with your placards and your delocks outside, you know, the Mining Council. It's a funny one because I think people are relieved to see such a statement that maybe something's going to move. And on the other hand, people concerned they're being duped a bit here. This really played out in the comments section on the conversation article. There were so many people who were like, why are you saying these nasty things? You're scaring our new allies. And it's like, these people are not your allies. But people are so desperate for any sliver of good news that they'll swallow any old crap. We haven't talked yet about the Australia Aluminum Council and Australian Bureau of Agricultural and Resource Economics. The Australian Aluminium Council was the peak body for four, or maybe even three, big companies. And to make aluminium, you have to use a lot of energy. And any carbon tax would damage your profit margins. And so all through the 90s, the Australian Aluminium Council was doing things like funding ABAR, which we're going to come on to. And they were a key player in the so-called Greenhouse Mafia, which was members of the Industry Greenhouse Network and a few others who were doing everything that they could to stop 
Australia having any real domestic policies around energy efficiency, but also stopping Australia making any international commitments. And you can read about this in Guy Pearce's High and Dry. What's happened now is that the aluminium smelters have closed, they've become more efficient, and the carbon tax is no longer such an existential threat, and so they've shifted their position. ABAR is fascinating. It's set up, I think, early 80s, I could be wrong, and it's basically a wing of the state that crunches numbers about, well, what would the impact of such and such a policy proposal be if we put up tariffs on something or if we tried to export more wool or whatever. Basically, what happened is in order to have economic reports that said any carbon tax is going to cause absolute economic devastation, the people who were pushing for no action decided that they would not only fund other think tanks, but they would also funnel money to Abair. And Abair had this system in the 1990s that Abair would essentially sell a seat on their governing body for $50,000. What you have is groups like Shell, the Australian Aluminium Council, BHP, Rio Tinto, all chipping in $50,000 and getting a seat on Abair's governing body, helping create this economic model called Megabear, which proved, in inverted commas, that any climate action would be disastrous for the Australian economy. So the Australian Conservation Foundation said, hang on, this isn't fair. You guys are writing an economic model and writing reports which have the credibility of a sort of neutral Australian state behind it when it's actually what we would now call a sock puppet. is like a troll on the internet where it, it pretends to be one person, but it's another. So the Australian Conservation Foundation went to Abair and said, well, look, we really think that we should be on your governing board too, because we know a lot about climate policy and climate change, but we don't have $50,000. And Abair said, yeah, the door's that way. So the Australian Conservation Foundation then complained to the ombudsman saying this wing of the state that everyone thinks is a neutral actor has actually basically been captured by fossil fuel companies and is being used to churn out extremely dodgy economic modelling that has a set of baked-in assumptions which inevitably say that any carbon tax is disastrous, even though lots and lots of economists think that a carbon tax is a really sensible thing. So in 1998, the ombudsman came down with a report that was the usual sort of on the one hand this, on the other hand that. What ended up happening is Abair just kept doing what it did and the Liberal Party kept using Abair numbers in battles in all through the first half of the 2000s to claim that uh, they were being economically responsible by doing nothing on climate change because here's an independent report that shows that dot, dot, dot. But can I very quickly, the ACTU, I guess there's some tension there because some members would be involved in some of these extractive industries. The main problem was that early on, the ACTU decided that if the teachers are going to speak on education policy and the health workers are going to speak on health policy, the coal miners should be allowed to speak on energy and climate, which superficially makes sense. But if you stop to think for a second, you realise where that's going to take you. And that business council battle with the Australian Industry Greenhouse Network in 94-95 against Faulkner's carbon tax, give you one guess which side the ACTU was on. They lined up alongside 
the business council and the miners against the carbon tax. And that was part of swinging things against a carbon tax because Faulkner was a greenie, essentially. But some of the other ministers in Keating's government and Keating himself were most definitely not greenies. And Keating was very, very pissed off with environmentalists and feeling a bit tender because that was the summer of the, the wood chip protests in Canberra. I'm not saying that the ACTU have stayed villains ever since, but let's remember just because it's a union doesn't mean it's always going to be progressive and it's always going to defend the broader interests of future generations and future species. That will continue to be a live tension going forward. So, you know, people criticised the article going, why are you digging up this stuff? It doesn't matter anymore. And I didn't use the quote, those who do not remember history are condemned to repeat it, because it's such a freaking cliche. But those who do not remember history are condemned to repeat it. You know, it's a cliche for a reason, because it, there's a truth there. Why the sudden change of heart now from these organisations, do you think? I think it will be different for different members of the roundtable. It's all very hard to unpick the internal battles within a trade association because you can't use the freedom of information act you don't normally get leaks a lot of it is just sort of speculation and common sense i think the chaos in the policy making that i alluded to and if you read people like laura tingle and lenore taylor they do talk to elite business actors off the record and what they have been reporting for years is that there is a sense of bewilderment, frustration and anger about the business costs being racked up because of the policy chaos. And so I think that's a major factor. But I would say, again, uh, with my academic hat on, there's a bit of speculation in there and it will be different for different groups. Dr. Mark Hudson, a postdoctoral researcher at Keele University, and there will be a link to his paper on the Listening Notes website. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. And that's all we have time for on Listening Notes today. A big thank you to all our guests, Ashton Dickerson, Mark Lindley, Kate Sr., and Mark Hudson. Stay tuned to 3CR because Diaspora Blues is coming up next. And do take care, stay well, and I'll catch you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.